you can talk, you can talk, you talk. It's like trying to plan a trip that you never take, right? And as much as we talked, no deeper processing was happening. This is Sam, who struggles with major depressive disorder. He's been in therapy for 10 years. You can only talk about something so long. You know, with all those suppressed emotions, it was like I could see behind this glass curtain. And I could see the emotion, I could see the pain, but I just, for whatever reason, I wasn't able to connect with it on a deeper level that was needed to process, release, and heal. Sam's treatment story is all too common. In addition to therapy, he was taking antidepressants, which also didn't seem to help. Because I felt that I wasn't able to be myself on them. I would generally describe myself as a rather gregarious fellow. And you know, your classic SSRIs, they come in and they just numb everything. Everything turns to gray. And the point of that, obviously, is to make it so hards don't hit as hard, but then the highs don't hit as high either, right? So you see a puppy, you're like, oh, that's nice, rather than, oh my gosh, there's a puppy that sort of feeling. So I really did not like that. And underneath it all was like this this rage, this frustration that I was just grayed out, that I couldn't feel anything, that I couldn't even be present in my own life because I was so numb to everything. He was so defeated by unsuccessful treatment and so desperate to feel better that Sam turned to a very unconventional approach. And he went from being intensely suicidal to now being able to say, I love Sam. Huh, I didn't realize That's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, let's see what happens if we shift our perspective on mental illness. Western medicine tells us that depression, anxiety, ADHD, schizophrenia are all fundamentally a brain problem. Something's out of whack, and the best way to address it is with medicine, and maybe also some talk therapy to help cope with the symptoms. But those methods don't seem to be working. More than one in 10 Americans is taking antidepressants, but the rate of depression has not declined. Suicidal ideation continues to rise among adults and children. Could changing the way we think about mental illness make a difference? The way we think about what causes it, about how best to treat it? This hour, let's try on some different perspectives, starting with Sam. I just felt stuck. I felt like I was in, you know, up to my waist in the ground, grasping at straw. And that's what led to the initial plunge into psychedelics. Yes, psychedelics. They are now an active area of psychiatric research. Substances that have long been considered drugs of abuse are leading to breakthroughs in treating depression, suicide, PTSD, even eating disorders. Sam's story is a hopeful one. But before he found relief, things got pretty dark, and we're going to hear about that. Suicide will come up during today's episode. Please know that if you or someone you love is feeling hopeless— there is help. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7. That number is 1-800-273-8255. Now, Sam says there is depression in his genes, but a series of breakups and some less-than-ideal coping skills compounded things. I think my family is really good at suppressing emotions. Avoid at all costs the things that cause you pain. And... I'm a very good survivor. That's something I learned to do from an early age. Not that I have a horrifically traumatic story, but, you know, rather than process the emotion or have them acknowledged, I just pushed them down until essentially I started reaching various breaking points in my life where I kind of woke up and realized, wait, whose life is this? Whose life am I living? As we heard earlier, Sam tried talk therapy and antidepressants for years without relief. He was so desperate to feel better, he started searching for anything that might help. Reading articles online about mushroom psychedelics, um, going on Reddit to read people's personal accounts of what psychedelics mushrooms had done for them. So that's when, you know, I saw enough um, data, air quotes, as it were, to back up the power of mushrooms that I called up my buddy who's a Native American and lives in California, and I told him I wanted to try mushrooms because I didn't really know what else to do at this point. Sam flew out to California, and they headed out to his friend's place on tribal land. 
The magic mushrooms did not taste good, so they mixed them in yogurt. And then as quick as we could, we shoveled that down. An hour later, the effects kicked in. Sam went from feeling like he lived in a grayscale world on the antidepressants to suddenly... A kaleidoscope experience. And I remember sitting on that couch thinking about my parents with this notepad I had and this feeling of just like, not so much like thought, but just feeling like the realization how much I loved my parents. And for me, it was the first time I had felt affection for them, genuine affection for them in years. And he felt compassion for himself. Like, okay, I may have done something that was dumb, but I'm actually not an idiot and there is room for improvement, there is room for progress. Which for me, at the tender age of what, 24, 25, was absolutely groundbreaking. He carried that experience into his regular therapy sessions and was able to make some small improvement. But when a new manager made his work life unbearable, things fell apart. I spent 2019, 2020 straight up escaping life, trying to avoid the reality I had been given. Because my reality had become so painful, I, I wanted nothing to do with it. Fast forward all of that to 2021, a girl comes into the scene. Uh, we hit it off really well, started seeing each other long distance. And following a trip to visit her, she ghosted me. <laughs> Classic. Mm. That was kind of like the cherry on top. Because I kind of, at that point in time, like the undercurrent feeling of my life was like, I'm not good enough for anything, for a job, for my family, for God, for a relationship, no matter what it is, I'm not good enough. Um, and that was in May of 2021. And I spent two months in probably the lowest state I've ever been. I don't remember the entire month of June. I think I slept probably 14 hours a day. Like I was so far down that hole of believing that it was absolutely my fault that that everything I perceived had fallen apart was my fault, that I was like, it would be better for me to just end my life because I, I saw no way out of it. I felt absolutely trapped. Two things saved Sam's life. First and foremost, I, I can thank my, my good friend. He would FaceTime me every day without even, I think, realizing the full extent of what he was doing. He was there enough that I was like, if, if Terrell sees your worth, if Terrell is this good of a friend, you're probably worth something. Sam's friend, Terrell, shifted the way he thought about himself just enough to restart therapy. And this new therapist recommended Sam try psychedelics again. Nothing short of a life changer. Nothing short of a game changer. This time, ketamine, which is a sedative that in smaller doses has a more psychedelic effect. It's not approved by the FDA for treating depression, but since it is approved as an anesthetic and considered safe, psychiatrists can prescribe it for an alternative use. In Sam's case, he went to a clinic and took the ketamine by an IV drip. A therapist was with him in the room the whole time. I'm um, just kind of to be with you, walk you through the experience. And I, it felt like I had literally been in there for 100 years. It was only 45 minutes, but it felt like 100 years. Mm. My buddy Terrell took me there and then took me home and I spent the next 12 hours sleeping. And I woke up the next day and it was the first time I think in a year that I woke up and I felt capable and I felt interested in life. Which is kind of weird. <laughs> but I do think my years of preparatory work, my years of therapy really helped the ketamine. I almost look at it like you yourself, your psyche, your conscious is the gardener, the mind, the subconscious is the garden, and then ketamine is the fertilizer. Hmm. So I had prepared the garden. I had been trying to get things to grow. And then Ketamine Miracle Grow came in and said, hey, let's actually get this to grow. And 12 hours later, you wake up <laughs> feeling like a new man. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was like the hypercritical voice in my head, the voice that told me I was incapable, not good enough, was muted. Day four... Um, I was driving home late and I, I had this thought, oh, I should just drive my car into like the barrier. Mm. Um, and it hit really hard 
that thought. One, because I had gone four days without those thoughts without even realizing it. And that's when I realized how much over my lifetime I've thought about suicide, thought about escaping. Um, but the other part of it, the good side of that was, oh my gosh, I went four days without these thoughts. I want to keep trying that. Um, so I think day six, I went back for another IV. And then six days later, I went back for another IV. And then I started to space them out more and more. The last dose I got, I went 10 weeks between doses. Are you still receiving ketamine treatment then? Um, if I need another booster shot, I 100% will. Huh. You think of it like a booster. Like, a, let's yeah. just get a little reset here. Well, and that's the goal with ketamine. They, uh, the goal is not to be taking them continually. The goal is to go as long as possible without them. So are you still depressed? Um, I would not describe myself as depressed anymore. Yeah. And you're not taking antidepressants. I'm not taking antidepressants. Why do you think ketamine worked in a lasting way where nothing else had? I guess I, I think of the brain kind of like a river running through a field, path of least resistance, right? So it's really easy to get stuck. You, you get stuck in a trench. You get stuck in a way of thinking about people, yourself, your reality, right? So in my case, it was that I am utterly incapable. I will never amount to anything. I'm never worthy of love. I can't accomplish anything. That was like my default way of thinking of things. So for four days, the first IV, I was able to start making new paths. Um, and then I needed those additional shots to kind of reinforce that new way of thinking, that new way of being. So like I said, I've been 10 weeks now since my last IV, which is phenomenal. And that's 10 weeks of reinforcing, working on maintaining those, um, those pathways. Can you describe for me what it's like when you are under the influence of the ketamine? Oh, um, I mean, physically, it's just kind of like, think about when you wake up in the morning, but you're not fully awake. You're just kind of like completely relaxed. Everything feels heavy. That's kind of what it feels like. Mentally, if you close your eyes, you're flying through the cosmos. I can still vividly remember this moment of like being stretched out and like seeing this black hole and like feeling myself dissolve, um, which is a very, that's quite literally why they call it trippy, but like trippy experience, like you feel yourself dissipate, you feel yourself disappear. And so help me understand though, because that doesn't sound particularly therapeutic if what you're trying to do is feel more compassion for yourself or, or for others or access certain emotions that you've yeah. been struggling to. Well, So is the trip kind of separate from the after effect where there's more malleability involved? Uh, I, yes, they, they, they work in tandem because you'll have these moments where you're flying through the cosmos, but then you also have these moments where you're reflecting on a memory or you're focusing on a specific emotion or pain. And it's almost like they blend together in a beautiful sort of way. Um, strangely enough for me, you know, my last ketamine session, I would almost describe it as a spiritual experience. I walked out of there feeling closer to myself and feeling closer to my, to God than I think I've ever felt in my life. It's, it's almost like psychedelics return you to love. At your core, you are love. At everyone else's core, they are love. You want to love them. You want to love yourself. Because mm. two years ago, the Sam I am today, I, I was not in love with. I hated him. I wanted nothing to do with him because that's what I thought the world saw him as. No one I ever interacted with loved Sam. So I was like, well, why should I love Sam? Fast forward to today, ketamine <laughs> and the work I've done, it's not a silver bullet, but has really helped me get to a space where I can say, I love Sam. Sam is not perfect. Sam has a lot to work on and fix, but I'll be darned if he's not worth it every day. We're grateful to Sam for being so honest with us about his mental health struggles. He is far from alone. Every year in America, one in five adults and one in six kids suffers from a mental health disorder. And if that seems like a lot, wait till you hear what researchers learned when they monitored the mental health of a group of people for 50 years. 
Their findings are pushing psychologists to rethink how they diagnose and treat mental illness. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Here's what you need to know about the study that's upending the standard way doctors and therapists approach mental illness. It was started in 1972 with all the babies born in one city in Dunedin, New Zealand. This is Terry Moffitt, clinical psychologist, professor at Duke University, and researcher on the Dunedin study. They took all those babies, just over a thousand of them, and brought them in for physical and mental health assessments every other year over the course of 50 years. So if you interview people over and over and over again as they go through life, virtually everybody will encounter some brush with a mental health condition. 85% of participants experienced a diagnosable mental health illness during the first 50 years of life. The research team was shocked. Because we had been thinking, you know, usually when you read statistics in the newspaper about how many people, how many Americans have a mental disorder, and they always say something like about 15% or 20%, mm-hmm. but they're talking about a point in time uh, prevalence rate. So how many have had it right now or in the past three months, six months, past year? Um, what we found was when you follow people through time, people go in and out of the state of mental disorder, and it just accumulates over over time. Um, So one thing you might ask is, because this study takes place in New Zealand, maybe it's everybody in New Zealand has got an issue, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or maybe there's something terribly wrong with our research. But Moffat says comparable studies have been conducted in Switzerland, North Carolina, and New York with similar results. And they, too, got the same number, somewhere between 65 and 85 percent of their participants that have been followed for 20, 30, 40 years have had at least one brush with a mental disorder. Did did you find that people would sort of have it and then maybe 10 years later they'd have it again? Like they were prone to have, if depression was your thing, (laughs) then that was the thing that you'd have periodically throughout your life. That's another surprise, Julie. We found that their disorders change as they age. So uh, someone who started life by having, say, separation anxiety disorder, where they were paralyzed by the fear that their parents would die when they were in elementary school. Then they moved into high school and maybe they had um, problems with cannabis. Uh, Then they moved into young adulthood and they might have... um, Uh, episodes of depression. And then they moved into their 30s and 40s and had a very stressful career, and they might have um, a generalized anxiety disorder. And then by the time they were in their 50s, maybe they uh, developed an alcohol problem. So we found that people, especially those who started out during adolescence, tended to move in and out of different um, diagnoses over the life course. We even found that some of the disorders that you think of as really being lifelong, actually they come and go as well. Some people were diagnosed with schizophrenia when they were in their 20s, and then by the time they were in their 40s, it seemed that they had recovered from that, and what they had at that point was uh, anxiety and depression. Having watched these patterns play out in the study participants, Moffat has begun to think about mental illness as... Sort of like an underground river. It runs through someone's life and, you know, you don't see it until they hit a point in life of terrible stress and then it bubbles up. And so um, all mental disorders have similar causation. The study also found that people who have long bouts with mental illness, symptoms lasting longer than two weeks, are more likely to have another mental health disorder later in life. So it seems to be kind of a law of nature that the more mental illness you have, the more you will also then have in the future Mm. uh, later on. So um, it's actually quite rare for people to only have one short brush with mental disorder at any time in their whole lives. So what does this mean for the way we've been treating mental illness? I like to think it means we've been, and when I say we, I include myself because I'm a clinical psychologist and I've made this mistake with my own patients, is I see them on the day that they come into my office, I decide right there that they have depression or OCD or ADHD, and I decide to treat that thing with some kind of treatment that will suppress those symptoms. And 
and then I let them go. Uh, I think that's a terrible mistake. Whereas, if I was thinking the long haul over the future that you might have some other disorder years and years and years from now when you have a stressful point in life, I might try to talk to you more about uh, your values, about the things in life that are important for keeping you healthy, like the importance of... um, Uh, affectionate relationships, of having social support, of having um, a a good sleep hygiene, uh, getting lots of sleep, the importance of physical exercise, of sunshine, of, you know, just really how to have an overall healthier lifestyle. So I'd be less focused on your um, depression symptoms and more focused on how to live, really. Would you still suggest the medication and and work on the sad thoughts too? Yes, yes. It's no good talking to someone about diet and exercise when they're having suicidal thoughts. You yeah. really, you must take care of the, the problem at hand, but then not just stop there. I see. Continue with life, kinds of life skills. I do have to say that this is kind of a novel way of doing things. The mental health community is not very good at it yet. We don't have all the bugs worked out of the therapeutic protocols. Um, so not every mental health counselor or social worker or psychologist or psychiatrist knows how to do this yet, that it's a growing movement. And I think it's it's becoming more and more popular as people really see the necessity. Forewarned is forearm. And you can anticipate a lot of stressful life events that are going to come. Let's say that we all know that our parents are going to pass away. That's going to be a vulnerable time for us. We all know that, um, you know, We may lose our job in the future. That's going to be a vulnerable time for us. So depression is really tied to stressful life events. Anytime you see a stressful life event coming, then you start to be alert to yourself and really work on your health behaviors. The Dunedin study also has important implications for kids and teens. It found the younger a person is when they have their first mental health problem, the more likely they are to have another later in life. Now, what does that mean for families? It means that, you know, we used to always say, if your teenager is having a mental health problem, you should wait and see. You don't want to assign a bad label. You don't want to upset everyone. You don't want to draw attention to it. Ignore it and it'll go away. They'll grow out of it. But in fact, what these longitudinal studies around the world have shown us now is that adolescence is a great time to do something um, because it, adolescent onset is a real warning sign for recurrence in later in life. You shouldn't freak out. Everyone remain calm and get a good workup for the adolescent. What's the point of getting a good workup is it's really hard to find mental health care these days and especially good mental health care. So you don't want to wait until your child is in the emergency room with a crisis and then start searching around for someone to help you. You want to make sure that there's a doctor somewhere who has mental health expertise that's already spoken with you and your child and has a chart and has a record of you so that when you contact them, they go, oh, yes, I know your family. I'm here to help. So it's just making sure that you're not out there alone by yourself trying to cope. That's Terry Moffitt, clinical psychologist and professor at Duke University. It's kind of surprising to think that treating the whole person rather than just the current condition is such a novel thing for professionals in the mental health field. Indigenous communities have been doing it forever. Much of Native traditional healing today is usually thought of as more transformative healing, calling on the higher powers, the spirit beings, the grandfathers for health and help. Let's see how traditional practices might help us reframe the way we treat mental illness. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. American Indian communities suffer higher rates of trauma, suicide, and addiction when compared to the rest of the U.S. population. Psychologist Joseph Gahn has dedicated his career to understanding why. I teach at Harvard University. I'm myself an enrolled member of the Aani Grovant Tribal Nation of Montana. 
My home reservation is the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation in north central Montana. It's an area of land that's shaped somewhat like a trapezoid on a map. And the reservation is northern plains, so it's punctuated on the north by the Milk River, on the south by the Little Rocky Mountains, and it's rolling prairie in between. It was during a research trip home as a graduate student when Gon had a conversation that would shape the rest of his career. It was with a man named Traveling Thunder. A middle-aged, traditionally oriented person. Um, and he felt like the answer to these problems in our communities was not mental health services and psychiatrists in the Indian Health Service, but rather um, traditional ceremonial activities. Um, he explicitly identified calling on the higher powers, the spirit beings, the grandfathers for health and help, and that that might be the best way to get help for mental health problems in our community. The reason Traveling Thunder rejected Western psychiatric treatment was because he also fundamentally rejected the Western idea that brain chemistry and genetics are at the root of mental illness among his people. He talked about colonial subjugation by Euro-Americans and the ways in which the decimation of traditional practices and orientations of um, basic ways of, of living that indigenous people had cultivated and perfected for millennia before white people arrived were completely and deliberately decimated by uh, colonial subjugation. And that's what led to this epidemic of problems. We didn't have epidemics of addiction, trauma and suicide prior to the reservation era or prior to colonial subjugation. The people of the United States and through government policy and government funding uh, made overt ideological war on Indian people's way of life. Um, and the boarding schools or industrial schools, as we should probably call them, were examples of that in which Native kids were coercively removed from their communities and placed in these loveless, forlorn places where you know, powerful teachers and adults sometimes took advantage, sometimes victimized them. But in any case, the deliberate exercise was to, quote, kill the Indian, save the man. So if you're taught that you're a savage, if you're taught that your way of life is um, inferior and or even, you know, demonic, as some church-run boarding schools would have it, um, then you lose all sense of who you are and uh, what you're supposed to do with your life and how to belong and so on. And so it's this legacy of subjugation and victimization that leads Indian people, as Traveling Thunder pointed out, to not know who they are or where they belong. And if you don't know who you are, he said, then you're going to do these things, alcohol, drugs, you're going to feel worthless, you're going to commit suicide. So a different cause calls for a different solution. When he described the origin of these problems um, as pertaining to this domination by a white man system, you know, the obvious question was, well, what then would you do for a loved one who is really struggling? Uh, under what conditions, I asked, would you take your loved one down to the Indian Health Service Clinic and help them get some counseling or see some professionals there? And in response, he grew quiet and was thoughtful for what seemed like a long 10, 15 seconds. And then his reply was, you know, we don't do that. We never did that. So, of course, I asked, well, what, what do you do instead? He said, well, I would put up a ceremony. You know, you, you hold a ceremony, you call on the grandfather spirits above for health and help. And as long as you're really, really sincere, he said, he said, they say that if you're really sincere, about 50% of the time, you'll get the help you need. So his preference um, was not mental health services, but rather prayer and petition of spirit beings who circulate life and pro pro provide and promote health and help. And I think that this is the key difference between traditionally oriented Indian people, and not every Indian person is traditionally oriented in this way, of course, but for those that are, health is a sacred endeavor. And so what you're talking about when you're trying to uh, promote health and overcome health problems is a religious sacred endeavor. And that's why ceremony looms so large. If the illness is caused by lacking a sense of identity, a sense of meaning, then the treatment is to restore meaning to a person's life. Ceremonial practices are what Gon calls meaning-making experiences, tapping into a deeper purpose and connecting with other people in your community. Ceremony and sacred practice is a collective endeavor. It involves people coming together 
in shared thought and shared prayer and petition. The social component is really, really important. I mean, it would be hard for me to imagine, you know, framing this as an individual endeavor, although that's often how mental health treatment is practiced in the broader society. In an attempt to see how well a traditional ceremonial approach might work, Gon partnered with an addiction treatment program on the Blackfeet Nation to create a two-week pilot program called the Blackfeet Culture Camp. And it wasn't led by addiction treatment professionals. It was led by Blackfeet ceremonial people. And so it was a really different approach. It had to do with visiting sacred sites, harvesting sacred medicines, participating in sacred ceremonies like pipe ceremonies, like sweat lodge ceremonies, had to do with um, some identity work around who's your family and your kinship networks, had to do with traditional practices like tanning hides or painting teepees or things like this. And unlike your typical addiction recovery program, there were no therapy sessions, no exploring past trauma. We're talking about feelings. At no point were clients asked to give an account of their childhood, to look inward about their feelings and experiences, to share outward and verbal expression with other clients what their feelings or challenges or burdens were. It was not particularly uh, psychologically oriented at all. The Blackfeet Culture Camp was about spirituality, ceremony, um, and being socially connected to people who were familiar with and engaged in those practices. The entire focus was connection and meaning-making. And Gon says the participants responded really well. But follow-up research would be necessary to say for certain how traditional cultural practices compare to other addiction treatment programs. Still, Gon says it's powerful simply to frame mental health struggles among American Indians as rooted in historical harm rather than brain chemistry or personal behavior. They can feel a lot of self-loathing and a lot of almost paralyzing uh, blame of themselves. When you're mired in that, you end up um, not necessarily changing your behavior. But the idea that these are post-colonial pathologies entails a recognition that it's not just you going through this, that actually our entire community has been subject to these colonial processes of subjugation. Not only that, um, your suffering is a result of people's deliberate effort to victimize, dispossess, and subjugate your ancestors. And so that has the potential to inspire a certain degree of resistance and wanting to not let that be the final say. So it's collectivizing the struggle. Joseph Gon says there's also a body of evidence that teaching young people the cultural practices of their tribe can prevent mental illness. I think ceremonial participation is not only about getting healing when something's wrong. It's also about being in proper relationships with those beings so that thriving and flourishing is made available in our communities through sacred means. So it's sort of as opposed to something you only do when you're sick, it's something you do to keep from getting sick. Gon says Native perspectives on mental health and treatment offer some broad lessons for non-Native people too. I think that the main contribution is a rescuing from, you know, the decade of the brain and really many, many years of uh, convincing the public uh, that their mental health problems are brain disease. And let me be clear, there are some mental health problems that are brain diseases. Um, it's, you know, that's the problem is you can't think of all mental health conditions as being the same in this respect. Addiction, trauma, suicide, these are disorders in part, at least, of meaning-making. And for many people, they are disorders of meaning-making. And so that suggests that they're amenable to interventions that also address meaning-making. And that's really important and quite different than uh, the kind of deep biological reductionism that tends to prevail in psychiatry. Joseph Gon is a cultural clinical psychologist and professor at Harvard University. Now let's meet Reed Robison. Fresh out of medical school, he was all in on that prevailing psychiatric approach. Very enthusiastic about wanting to make a positive dent in the universe. So he started going on medical mission trips to places like Ghana, Haiti, and Burma. Bringing what I thought was uh, a nice Western medicine approach to other countries in the third world. And uh, I quickly realized that we don't necessarily have the solution. In fact, I learned 
probably more from these cultures than I brought there. Like if you go to a medicine woman or a medicine man uh, and you're depressed in a culture like that, they might ask you, instead of like, what medicine have you tried or what medicine do you want to take? They, they might ask you like, when did you stop singing and dancing? Or when did you stop like, you know, gathering around the fire with your, with your friends and loved ones and telling stories and being enchanted by the mysteries of the universe? It highlighted to me the immense importance of our connections with one another, both within our individual close-knit family units and also in our communities more broadly speaking, um, and how in other cultures we're so supported versus here we often don't even know our neighbors. And also the importance of like ceremonies and rituals and um, the way other cultures commune with the divine and talk about it and connect with things greater than themselves. With those insights in mind, Robison was getting more and more frustrated with his own work treating psychiatric patients at a major U.S. hospital. We often look to these quick fixes, like uh, a medicine that might address the symptoms without looking at the root underlying cause. And there's also the whole system to look at, like the, the way we live, the way we interact, the way we support each other um, is a bit broken. What's more, his medicinal arsenal was pretty limited. The success rate of traditional antidepressants is often a coin toss or less and leaving so many people still suffering. If you look at other conditions like PTSD that traditionally just hasn't had um, many good options at all and, and things like eating disorders, look at anorexia as an example the mental health condition with the highest risk of death, of mort the highest mortality rate, yet there are no FDA-approved treatment options for anorexia. None. Here again, Robison thought of what he'd learned from indigenous healers he'd encountered. There's a medicine called ayahuasca, a plant medicine that comes from deep in the jungle in the Amazon, where for, uh, for ages... Cultures have used these medicines for their like healing and growth and spirituality-enhancing properties. If plants with psychedelic properties promote psychological healing in Native cultures, why couldn't they work here too, wondered Robison. Plenty of medicines approved by the FDA have mind-altering effects. What about the psychedelic drugs we've always assumed were good for nothing but partying and getting high? Could they have legitimate healing power? When I came across ketamine, there was uh, a growing body of evidence that ketamine was a pretty effective and rapid antidepressant. Ketamine is used in anesthesia, but it's also a popular rave drug because it creates a trippy, out-of-body experience. It's the drug Sam talked about earlier in the episode. And it was a game-changer for Dr. Robison, too, because it works so well, so fast. Traditional antidepressants like SSRIs, such as Prozac, Zoloft, they often take weeks to work. But when you're in a severe depressive episode, especially if there's any suicidality, you don't have that much time to wait. Um, it could be a crisis situation. So along came this medicine that was uh, well known to the healthcare field, not very expensive, not that hard to give. It was a little different for psychiatrists to embrace that, but uh, I could give it to someone in an acute uh, depressive episode, and about 70% of the time they would feel dramatically better. Ketamine works 70% of the time. Antidepressants work only about 30% of the time. Once Dr. Robison realized this, there was no turning back. He began using ketamine to treat depression in his psychiatry practice and began participating in clinical trials for a range of psychedelics. But why would a drug that creates a dreamlike, out-of-body experience help with depression? We all have this, uh, this network of uh, brain pathways called like the default mode network that governs 
you know, what we have to do, where we need to be, um, who we think we are, our stories, our, um, our preconceived notions about the world. And uh, you might even call that the ego, you know, this, this uh, t- mission control center. And it can get a little bit stuck, whether it's in an addictive pattern or in a negative self-belief pattern, or you might have deeply conditioned beliefs about... Um, about your unworthiness or something like that. Um, And ketamine comes in like a fresh coat of powder on a ski slope, where before that fresh um, snowfall, you might have indentations or even moguls that people traveling down the mountain, like skiers, would slide into these default tracks that they're going to go the same path over and over again. But along comes this big fresh coat of powder where the next time down the mountain you get to decide what course you chart you you know you get to more consciously choose not just where you're going but how you arrive there now ketamine does not cure depression and it's not a one-time thing either says dr robison it's more of a jump start to the work that happens in therapy but he says it's every bit as legitimate as other drugs currently approved to treat depression And in my opinion, uh, much more utility. There's this famous researcher, David Nutt, who did a study and showed that um, psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, they were all substantially less potentially damaging than some of the pain pills and anxiety pills we dish out often in our healthcare system. Robison is now chief medical officer at a company called Novamind, which has a research arm doing clinical studies of psychedelics for treating mental illness. The company also operates a number of clinics in Utah that do ketamine treatment. We met Dr. Robison at one of those clinics in a Salt Lake City suburb. It's a small office building with a fresh coat of paint and an upscale salon vibe. Hi. We're here to meet with Dr. Robison. We're treating all sorts of mental health struggles from ADHD and autism to depression, anxiety, OCD, and eating disorders uh, across the whole age spectrum in kids, teens, adults, the elderly. Interesting. So um, if I were to show up for a ketamine appointment yeah. What, what comes next? We would uh, get you settled in in one of our ketamine pods or treatment areas that you can see over there with the recliner, dim lights. Yeah, it's really, it's really dark in here. Uh, you just have a, a few little table lamps and some like very mood lighting. Mm-hmm. That's, that, this is how it always is. This is how we like to do it. We pay careful attention to the set and the setting. Uh, and try to make it a calming environment because uh, psychedelic medicines tend to kind of be amplifiers of what's going on in the the psyche. Okay, this Um, is a, so this is the chair. It it looks like a massage chair almost, or like a, it's like a big comfy leather recliner. Yeah, it it doesn't uh, give massages, unfortunately. (laughs) So after we've checked your vital signs and talked to you about the dose we're going to give, making sure everything is good to go. And so we give a shot in the arm, usually, of a a low dose of ketamine compared to what's used in anesthesia. And then the individual has about an hour experience, a a psychedelic journey of sorts, where we're right here uh, supporting and holding safe space. And here, if you need anything. How long would it take from the injection to where I started feeling the effects? Two minutes or less. And then the good and stuff. And then I just sit here for an hour. Like, there, there's no talking going on. I'm just... Usually not. Some people do interact, and if they do, that's great. It gives us a glimpse of what's going on in their experience. But most people have uh, mostly an internal experience because the real work we're doing here is inside. And then uh, when you're ready, you would just uh, take your eye shades off and we would be right there. And then that's when we do some of the therapy work um, right after. And then ideally, in the next day or two, we'll have you do a session, um, an individual therapy session or a group to uh, really try and translate this content into positive change in everyday life. 
I remember one client with severe depression um, stuck in this uh, in this really really dark place. During her first ketamine session, she just um, was in this dreamlike state, kind of familiar. She saw some family members, and uh, and she felt supported and relatively safe. But then she saw this like glowing ball of light that she just kind of followed in this dream. And then it was like uh, it was like her grandmother's voice telling her, "You're loved. You're supported." And then she just like followed that. But in this experience, you've got all your neurons like firing on all cylinders. You're feeling it. You're experiencing it. You're not just like talking about it or hearing about it or reading about it. Um, so she had this sense of knowing. It's essentially a mystical experience that these things can bring about um, that's even hard to put words around. But coming out of that experience, she just... Um, felt so much lighter, so much more loved, so much clearer on um, her path forward with hope that wasn't there before. And that was enough. Like, that was enough to get out of that deep, deep rut and, uh, and put one foot in front of the other and, and start walking that path to wholeness again. And what if it was an unpleasant experience, a bad trip, say? We like to believe that there aren't bad trips, just difficult experiences. And it's all part of the therapeutic process. If someone is anxious during, um, which could happen if you're totally um, new to uh, going deep inside yourself, whether it's through this kind of medicine or through uh, meditation practices or things like that, then if someone has anxiety that comes up, we're here supporting and we can talk through it. We can coach you through some breathing and uh, everyone makes it through the other side, <laughs> guaranteed. Dr. Robison says ketamine is considered very safe in low doses and in the tens of thousands of times he's administered it, he's never had an issue with a patient's health. They don't, by the way, give psychedelics to anyone with a history of psychosis. But is there any concern a person might start abusing ketamine as a result of treatment? Dr. Robison says it's not very addictive, but they take precautions to make sure people don't misuse it. We give it in clinic and we administer it here um, rather than giving people infinite supplies of it to take mm -hmm. with them um, because it is a controlled substance and because we do carefully screen for and put in checks and balances to help prevent addiction. Like what? Like uh, only giving it in clinic a certain number of times and making sure there's uh, regular touch points with your prescriber and your therapist and making sure we know what other substances are on board and, and we can see everyone's prescription record. At the moment, doctors can prescribe ketamine because it is FDA-approved as a sedative. But clinical trials are underway to get it approved specifically for mental health treatment, too. In addition to depression, Dr. Robison has seen it work well for people with eating disorders and addiction. And that is just the tip of the iceberg. In advanced clinical trials, MDMA, also known as ecstasy, has proven so effective in treating severe PTSD. It could be an FDA-approved treatment within a year. And Dr. Robison is doing research on psilocybin, a.k.a. magic mushrooms, to treat depression. He's particularly excited about the drug's spirituality-enhancing capabilities. My experience is that spirituality plays a huge role in um, healing and recovery from mental health conditions. If you connect with something greater than yourself, like a greater purpose, a higher power. Um, it's such a, a powerful anchor to help pull you out of that, uh, that kind of pit of despair or that um, place where you can't see the forest from the trees and it feels like there's no way out. And psychedelic medicines have this ability predictably. If you look at studies out of uh, Johns Hopkins, for example, where they gave high-dose psilocybin to uh, volunteers, 80 or 90% of them reported it was 
one of the top five most meaningful experiences of their lives. Um, similar to like having a child or something like that, um, it was that profound uh, of a mystical experience. And that's a lot of the, uh, the healing power of these, in my opinion. Dr. Robison's also a fan of other spiritual practices. He records his own guided meditations and he teaches yoga. While those things might be enough for some people to access a fresh layer of snow on their mental ski slope, Robison says many with mental health issues will hit a roadblock. And sure, I believe they could get through that with hours and hours um, of dedicated practice, but sometimes we don't have that much time or sometimes it's just not accessible. Psychedelics can help a patient get through that block. And help them make some accelerated progress at first, where they then ideally continue the lifestyle changes of using their community and their ways of caring for themselves to stay well. Psychiatrist Reed Robison is chief medical officer at NovaMind, a network of psychiatry clinics and clinical research sites specializing in psychedelic medicine. We've heard a lot of metaphors today as we have explored new ways of thinking about mental illness. Here's a final thought from Sam on shifting your perspective of mental health. He says, your mind is a garden and you are the gardener. Weeds are naturally going to spring up if you're not cultivating that garden. You have to be judicious in your thoughts. You know, a negative thought comes up, something that you want to beat yourself up for, you honestly got to pinch it in the butt and say like, no, like that's the old way of thinking about things. I'm here to have compassion for myself. And it is amazing how when those thoughts add up, how you end up in a new place, a better place. Sam's mind garden is in full bloom these days, thanks to therapy, ketamine treatment, and friends who cared enough to reach out. There is a lot of hope to be found in rethinking our most common assumptions about mental illness. If you're struggling right now, there is help. Talk to someone you trust or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Ciara Hewlett and Aubrey Johnson, with help from me and Cleon Wall. We had music and sound design by Jacob Molaski and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. We'd love to have you subscribe and leave a comment or review wherever you listen to the podcast. That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.